0: guys, gals, and non-binary pals, and welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science and Pictures magazine. You should know the drill by now. There's two of us here. I'm one of them, Madison Dix. There's the other one.
1: Jared Adam.
0: That's him. And we are both here to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature while also having some fun, uh, going down some tangents and rabbit holes, sharing some fun facts, and generally um, having a good time uh, taking the pretension out of science. Yeah,
1: as uh, is very much a needed thing in today's news. I'm very tired, if you can, cannot tell already. Let's keep going.
0: In today's news, Jared is... No, in today's news. <laughs> in today's nudes.
1: In today's news, <laughs> local white man is tired. Everyone feel bad for him, anyway.
0: Um. We're all tired. Um, <laughs> it's a tired time to be alive.
1: It is a tired um, time.
0: We can include that or not. We'll see. We'll see how it
1: goes. It's been a long week, but let's have some science time.
0: Let's have some science time. All right. So if you have been listening, you might already know that it is Shark Month here at Science and Podcast. Um, it's also Shark Month at our host, Science and Pictures, uh, who, what they do is pretty, pretty, pretty super cool. Um, translating peer reviewed oh. scientific literature into. Is it
1: pretty super cool?
0: <laughs> it's pretty super cool. Uh, we should start that over. All right. No, no, no,
1: no, no, no. I like it. Keep going. I'm leaving that in.
0: Ah, damn it. Okay.
1: Well, not at all.
0: Anyway, what Science in Pictures does, as the name might suggest, is translate that science into pictures or comics. And that's pretty fun. The comics that are out right now are about shark vulnerabilities. So we're aligning with that. And as we uh, spoke about last week, um, we think Shark Month and Pride Month also go well together.
1: Yes, because as we talked about extensively, there is a small group of humans who allow their infants to consume each other in the womb.
0: That is not why.
1: (laughs) That was a dream. Okay, keep going.
0: Do not listen to Jared about that. Um, But... Sharks and queer people are both misunderstood, both need more protection, and are both super rad and diverse. And um, that's why. <laughs>
1: yeah. So props to both of those groups.
0: Yeah. Um, so if this is your first episode that you're listening to, I'm going to stop you right here. Go back to at least the last one, um, because today's episode is more of a continuation of the last episode, which was about sharks. How they Can are. I say something really dumb. <sighs>
1: Fine. It's an extend episode. <laughs>
0: it's an extendisode I actually like that
1: okay let's keep it
0: (laughs) it's an extendisode um so if you haven't listened to the last episode you might be confused today because um the jargon from the last episode still applies here we're not going to do a separate jargon corner it's all about the ecology of fear um and interactions between apex predators in ecosystems
1: yeah yeah Mm-hmm. Ooh, so but the, before yeah. that, uh, even though we're not doing a jargon corner, we probably should do a fun fact corner.
0: Yeah, we should do a fun fact corner. All right. Stroll on over to the fun fact corner with me.
1: It's more and, of a limb for me today, but I get your point.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, no one... I'm not going to pressure anyone to stroll. Just just get over <laughs> here. <laughs> I'll In skip whatever, a little bit. Yeah. Whatever fashion suits you. All right, what do you have to share today?
1: <laughs> so, um... This is something that actually made me scratch my head for a while because I learned the very much the complete opposite, but I guess um, you know the, one of the many situations where nuance is, is a thing, because um, uh, my fun fact is that not all spiders are venomous. There is a very, very, very small minority that have unevolved that's not a word lost the ability to produce uh, venom through venom glands over time. Um, they are called What's
0: up? They unevolved it. so devolved
1: Well. I don't think devolved is a word that's generally used anymore, just because, like, to a lot of people, that kind of implies like a direction, which is not or, like, something.
0: Send it into chaos. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> 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 it's kind of chaotic, actually. So the family um, is Uluboridae, which is uh, they're called cribellate orb weavers, um, and instead of uh, biting their prey and uh, injecting venom, they will regurgitate their stomach acid um, after spinning their prey up in a web, and then just vomit over the whole thing. Uh, digest it, and then slurp it back up. So uh, kind of like what a sea star does, except not with a tube, just into the open air.
0: Oh, that's cool. Sea stars also don't do it with a tube, by the way. That's a moon snail that you're thinking of.
1: Oh, shoot, you're right. What's the word? It's like a...
0: Sea stars literally expel their stomach and wrap it around the creature. Yes,
1: thank you. Okay.
0: External (laughs) digestion. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um and then there's a couple select species inside another family I'm uh, not rem- rem- remembering the name of but uh, the t- so most spiders the vast majority are still venomous and so it is fair to say that you know spiders are venomous but there is an exception to every rule in biology and that definitely applies to spiders as well
0: That's super interesting. Also like I mean there's plenty of venomous spiders out there that their venom is not nearly potent enough to give you anything more than like an itchy bump.
1: Oh, yeah, that's another really good point. Um, venomous does not equal dangerous to humans. Venom is designed for a specific purpose, generally attacking prey in some select cases self-defense. But just because something is venomous, it's just it's the technological term for it. It doesn't mean that it's actually dangerous to humans. But yeah, sorry.
0: and venom is just a super cool thing to study because venoms are super targeted for the type of animals that they're supposed to affect. And I mean, it is it is crazy the variation that you get in the complexity of the proteins that are found in venoms. It's so cool. Uh,
1: yes. Also, that does make you wonder what comb jellies evolved. Uh, no, not Jesus. Not not comb jellies. What box jellies evolved to envenomate in the first place? Because their venom just kills everything. So, like, I know. Is there just some massive super thing back then that was just impervious to everything but comb jellies? It's insane thinking about it. But yes.
0: Once again, box jellies, but...
1: (laughs) Different phylum, sorry.
0: All right, and this has been our first tangent. Uh (laughs) More words,
1: even. Not usual. Very usual.
0: (laughs) Oh, just super interesting. Yeah, no, we can't start talking about venoms because I'm going to... We're going to just devolve into chaos.
1: There are a couple mildly venomous sharks, but I understand.
0: Yes. Oh, with the little spines. See, it's already happening. Okay. (laughs) All right, so my fun fact this week has nothing to do with Venom. Um, and it is, once again, from the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer.
1: Ooh, I just got recommended by another random person to read that, by the way.
0: It is so good, Jared.
1: So I will good. have to take you up on it. I'm still uh, getting through gory details, just because I can kind of only do, like, a chapter at once. Um, the last What's one. Was about... Okay, yeah. Um, uh, just to give you a reference, the last chapter was kind of ranking mammals in uh, terms of how likely they are to murder each other.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay very different book very different <laughs> book. Yeah, reading sweetgrass is more about how um the ways in which humans and um the environment can work together instead of against each other which is super cool
1: very different term but i i also like w- learning about nice things
0: yeah indigenous wisdom um and speaking of indigenous wisdom what i learned this week um so does the word iroquois mean anything to you
1: um, yes, that's a Native American tribe, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Nice. Um, yes. So Iroquois is the word that the, that the French assigned to the First Nations of the people of the Great Lakes region. Um, but it's actually not what they call themselves or ever have or ever will. And I find oh. that super, um upsetting because throughout my entire 27 years i've only, i've learned that those were the iroquois people like in school and everything but that is that is not their word that's a colonizer word and the actual word they use to describe their people is super cool it's a uh, Haudenosaunee, which means people of like the there's... longhouse.
1: interesting i've definitely heard parts of that word before
0: yeah you've probably heard um shawnee yes that's another, that's another nation. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. But Haudenosaunee, um, people of the longhouse. Um, a lot of people think that it refers to the type of shelters they build, which would are, you know, somewhat longhouses. Um, but it actually refers to the fact that the Haudenosaunee um, encompasses five different original nations of indigenous people who all formed a partnership and worked together. And those people stretched from the Great Lakes region all the way over to the East Coast. So it's a long house. And that house, more of a feeling of working together, of home, of trust. And the different people, the different nations in the Haudenosaunee had different jobs, essentially, in ways that they managed the environment. Some of them were more nomadic. Some of them would stay in one place and had permanent settlements, um, and they also guarded, like, the different corridors. So, like, the Mohawk, for example, are part of the Haudenosaunee. Now,
1: that's another one that, that, uh, you maybe think about when you started talking about this, because I seriously doubt that they call themselves the Mohawk people, right? Oh, they do. Oh. Yeah. Damn. Okay, I'm an idiot.
0: <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, it, this stuff is not taught, and it should be. Um, and, like, also, if we have any you know, people of Indigenous descent, any Indigenous people listening, if I'm, like, butchering any of this, like, please write it and let me know. Um, I don't want to, like, white it. I'm just, I think it's so, so important to correct these things and, you know.
1: I will also say that every th- single thing I learn about how uh, the Native peoples treated this continent makes me think how great of a place it was before our ancestors showed up.
0: Mm-hmm. It was a great place before white people got here. Um, and, I mean, there's still great things about it. Um, and there's still native people here who are, you know, keeping on the traditions um, that have made it such a great place.
1: In spite of everything trying to be done to them and actually yeah. to them.
0: Oh my gosh, they they're fighting such a hard battle. They need all the help that we can give them. Um, but also, so you know that question of like, if you had a time machine, what era would you go back and visit? And it's like the '60s, the '70s, the '50s. Madison,
1: Madison, we're veering so far, of course, at this point. <laughs>
0: Okay, but just to wrap it up, um, I want to go to um, the 1300s before um, this continent was ever set foot upon by white people. And I, I don't want to set foot on it because I feel like that would be rude, but I just want to like, be a little ghost and like see what's up.
1: <laughs> I would like that. Yeah. Also, definitely uh, def- definitely a ghost because the, uh, the water as it existed back then probably had different organisms in it that would do a lot of uh, harm inside our modern bodies.
0: Oh, I mean, so many things. Like, I don't have survival skills. Like, if I set foot on this continent in 1300, I would be dead as hell. Like, so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. But you're right. There's many tangents, many tangents. Um, that was our fun fact corner. So fun.
1: What? That was more than a fun fact corner, but. That
0: was <laughs> so a many episodes. Way. In a corner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jared and I have varied interests. Listeners. Listeners. Listen. No, no, no.
1: Listen, I would be happy to have this conversation in an episode that's not about sharks.
0: (laughs) But this is about sharks. So let's get to the sharks. As I mentioned, there will be no Jargon Corner this week because y'all already know all of the special words you need to know from last week. Um, If you need a refresher, just go back and listen to the Jargon Corner if you so choose. Um... So, starting out, I want to do a little review of the ecology of fear, which I touched on in the last episode, but didn't go deep on. So, Jared, can, can you summarize the ecology of fear?
1: Um, the ecology of fear was figured out at a place called Camp Crystal Lake. Um, there was a. guy <laughs>
0: <in California. laughs> No, Dude, oh, I love that reference. Thank you. Thank you. Wait, is Crystal, um, is that? Friday the 13th, or is it, um... yeah. yeah, okay,
1: that's what I thought. That's uh, the, the uh... I think that's, that. yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's the Jason one, right?
0: I think so. I get it mixed up with the other one that's similar.
1: You know what's funny is I just yelled at you for going off track. Um... <laughs> <laughs> the ecology of fear is basically the idea that even animals like sharks that don't have an outsized influence as far as what they eat um, can still have an effect based on the behavior that they influence in other animals.
0: Exactly. And it especially applies to large carnivores and top predators. And so the natural extension of the ecology of fear is to look at humans' impact on the animals around us, not the impacts that you usually think of, like pollution or like us eating them, um, but actually the effect that fear of humans has on the ecology of the places that humans inhabit.
1: Yeah, I actually almost did um, an article about this in another episode, but there is some decent evidence to say that, like, not in the same behavioral ways, but um, a certain species of very, very sought after plant, and I think a Southeast Asian country is becoming more hard to find by human eyes um, because of how much it's being harvested. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay,
0: but that is, you know, it's being harvested. The ecology of fear is the effects that happen without any sort of touch.
1: Oh, true. Okay, bad example.
0: So I thought you were about to say that that plant is afraid of us and it's hiding from us. And I was like, we need to unpack that right now.
1: <laughs> Future episode, maybe.
0: Future episode, maybe, yeah. Um, that would be crazy. All right. But um, the ecology of fear was a really great primer um, where I found this information. It's published in the journal Current Biology. It's published on May 6th, 2019 by the authors Liana Y. Zanette and Michael Clinchy. I think Clinchy. Finchie. Anyway, uh, they're from the Department of Biology at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. Ooh. So, a section of this article that I'm most interested in is fear of the human super predator.
1: And super predator we very indeed are. I think it doesn't make a lot of sense to say that we're removed from the food web because, like, in the places where wild habitats still exist, we sure do have an influence.
0: We do, and it's it. That's why I like this theory. Um, because even though we are sort of removed from the food web, because we really, most people don't survive off of wild animals, you know? True. Um, yeah, I guess I take that back. But that's why this, this fills in so well, because even though we're not directly eating other animals, um, they know we're there and they react to it and they change their behavior in response to it. I'll get into it. All right. So a recent analysis of worldwide data has documented that humans have a unique ecology um, that in the past has often included killing carnivores, um, often because we are afraid of them. Um, And we kill these carnivores at a much higher rate than non-human predators. However, In recent decades, that has slowed down quite a bit as people start to realize the importance of larger predators and as we've established protections for a lot of those charismatic megafauna, but we still see similar effects. So the danger from humans has created what they call in this article a global landscape of fear, which is, I know. Uh, it's like cascades of fear. It's metal, right? It is pretty <laughs> metal, yeah. Not cool. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, it's, yeah, it's especially so. It's affecting the movement and the degree of nocturnal behavior in virtually every species of land mammal.
1: Oh yeah, that I I, I don't doubt that for a second. We just did an episode about the millions and millions of grasshoppers over Las Vegas because of the light.
0: Right? Exactly. Yeah. But that's not even a land mammal. Um, every <laughs> species <of> land mammal. <laughs>
1: That, that is, that is at guess. least my first good example I brought up this, the, this episode. So you're welcome.
0: <laughs> All right. So some of the experiments cited in this study, um, for example, have shown. So in separate studies around impala, uh, deer, European badgers and mountain lions, those are animals from four different continents. Um, when they hear playbacks of humans literally just recordings of humans speaking calmly, not yelling or anything, just calm human conversations. Um, So they actually fear that far more than hearing vocalizations of their actual natural non-human predators. Wow. Yeah.
1: Where, where are we bad?
0: Um, Elephants flee when they hear people speak.
1: Ooh, I mean, good for them. That's definitely good for them to do,
0: but... Yeah, I mean, it is an example of an adaptation to a threat, um, right? Like, it's good that they're reacting in fear because, in general, um, we don't want people really close to wildlife. Things can go exactly. wrong. Uh
1: quick plug for uh, responsible wildlife rehabbers, because um, this is exactly why someone who just has never taken care of an animal uh, should just pick something off the street and try to rehab it. Because if it gets attached to people, there's a good chance it's going to get itself killed, as unfortunate as that is to say.
0: Yeah, um, because although most people have, you know, a a really positive feeling towards animals, um, there are, you know, some groups of people who are looking to kill them for the wildlife trade, um, you know, poachers. I don't get it. It, Y'all know. Y'all know. (laughs) It's bad. So, um, yeah. One really interesting um, piece of research included in this primer um, is a set of experiments that were done in California's Central Coast Mountains, in which they um, broadcast playback of humans conversing calmly, and then in the control, playback of um, the normal predators that would be in that area. And they broadcast this for uh, two square kilometers of forest. So it's a really large area to study. And they did it for five weeks. Uh, uh, Wow. Yeah. And there was a bunch of cameras, a bunch of, like, it was a huge study. And what they found was that when the human sounds were being played, it suppressed the movement and activity of all of the carnivores, And the mountain lions and bobcats reduced activity and feeding on their natural prey, which would be skunks and opossums. And then um, those smaller mammals uh, actually ended up really like coming out and doing a lot of activity, especially deer, mice and wood rats spent a lot more time feeding. And as a result, literally in just five weeks, um, a lot of the plants were were ground down were overgrazed, grazed over eaten by those smaller animals
1: hmm. someone said uh top down bottom up effects last episode
0: yeah super interesting especially when you consider the amount of people who have this desire to move into a natural area and do like homesteading don't you know, they want a house. don't,
1: don't homestead. god live in a van if you're gonna do that god right anyway, yeah sorry
0: so like people want you know, people have this. It's very popular right now to say, "I hate people," which I do say sometimes, because you know. It's a work work Yeah, um, and people want to get out in it. nature. It's a very idyllic fantasy that you go out, you have a cabin in the woods, and you live among the animals. But what we're finding with science is that the animals don't want <laughs> us to live among them. Um, just, <laughs> just calmly sitting in your cabin and talking to your partner. You can change the ecology of the area around you.
1: Cautionary tale, definitely noted, because I've had the idea of living, uh, you know, just remotely in the woods before. So, uh, yeah, I will give my animals I like a breath. Good breath. Right?
0: Me too. And often, like, when people, when you bring up, like, oh, I want to live alone in the woods, people are like, you're going to get killed by an animal. It's like, no, it's not (laughs) going to be that. (laughs) Might be a ghost. Yeah. Um, Or another person. Uh, Anyway. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so um, mountain lions reduce the time they spend feeding on prey when they hear humans. Um, And also, if mountain lions already have something that they're eating, um, that they've killed, they will abandon it if they hear humans coming too close. Um, And because of that, we get the same sort of effects that I talked about last week, where you get, you know, these animals... um, reproducing less because if they're feeding less, they have less energy reserves and then they have less energy to put towards reproduction. Um,
1: it also stands to reason that if they're in the middle of, should I even say this? If they're in the middle of reproduction and they hear humans, they're not going to continue.
0: Yeah. I I don't see any evidence of that in this study, but I think it's, I think it's an interesting hypothesis. And, um, I think it'd be hard to study because like mating in animals, some of it's like real brief. (laughs) That is true. Cats, (laughs) kind of have a long drawn out one though, don't they? I I wouldn't know. I'll ask Jack. Jack? I don't know how to phrase this question. <laughs> <laughs> we'll he also doesn't know. He's a baby. Um, sure. He's a big baby. Yeah. So yeah, fear of the human super predator is widespread. It's affecting ecosystems all over the world as humans continue to spread further, um, urban sprawl into natural areas. And it's something to keep in mind. Um, when we think of interactions between humans and top predators, mostly we put ourselves in the mindset of the prey, but that's not how predators see it.
1: No, we're the predators of them.
0: Yeah. So... Speaking of predators that you might not know are top predators that are also mammals, see where I'm going with this? Orcas. Orcas, exactly. Let me okay. share one uh,
1: one orca fun fact before you dive in, though. Okay, listeners, did you know that the name killer whale uh, is actually uh, something that's become so common because of a mistranslation? I'll wait for the listeners to uh, respond to this pre-recorded, pre-recorded, pre-recorded podcast three, two, one. Um, So there is a certain type of killer whale. I I don't remember the type, but uh, that will hunt uh, the calves of humpback whales. Um, Sometimes the whales themselves, I think. Is that true?
0: Transient, uh, transient killer whales. And yes, usually the calves, but they have been known, they have been observed on occasion to take down fully grown whales.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Um, But the uh, point to all of this is that uh, Spanish, um, they might've been whalers. Either way, they were uh, sailors. (laughs) <laughs> they were sailors or whalers. Um, they they would, were um, deaf uh, whalers, probably whalers. Um, they observed this happening and them... Oh yeah, them I shouldn't whalers.
0: say deaf whalers because that implies that I thought that they had were people with hearing impairments. I meant like definitely, definitely. I mean, like a big
1: splash. So you, you you could be deaf and hunt a whale. Not that you should. You
0: totally could. I just didn't want to imply. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How did we get out the rails so quickly? Anyway, I should probably re- I should probably wrap this up. Um, they. Uh, actually observed this happening and called them whale killers. Um, Which, of course, in Spanish, the adjective comes after the noun. So Mm -hmm. um, English-speaking people uh, heard this translation and misheard it as killer whales. And so that's how it uh, caught along.
0: Because in Spanish, it would be killers of whales. Well, whale
1: killers. In Spanish, it would be whale killer. Because, like, the noun comes before, you know?
0: Oh, I don't know Spanish. I'm I'm wrong. It's what's happening.
1: (laughs) I don't know Spanish either, but I did take three years back in high school.
0: Well, that's three years more than me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway, that's, that's my fun fact. Technically, they're yeah. dolphins. Anyway, keep going.
0: They're the largest species of dolphin. Um, yep. All right. So I don't want to tell you the title of this article because I'd rather keep it a little bit mysterious um, until we get to the results, but... This study concerns the interactions between orcas and white sharks, also known as great white sharks, also known as um, the animal that you saw very much misportrayed in the movie Jaws.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. You also might have seen them uh, on Shark Week on Air Jaws jumping out of the water to uh, called breaching to catch seals. Uh, A lot of people have that image in their head when they think of white sharks. Um, and that actually is accurate. That is something that white sharks do. And um, most people who you ask, um, you know, what's the top predator in the ocean? Most people would say a white shark or at least a shark in general. And white sharks are top predators. They are apex predators. They are circum-global. Um, They're found in every region of the ocean, except for the Arctic and Southern Oceans where it's too cold. And they eat a really wide range of things from mammals to large fish to squid um, and uh, deceased whales as well.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, Pause one sec, listeners, and watch a video of a white shark uh, eating a a, a dead whale because they do this. Okay, so most sharks don't have to actually keep swimming to breathe. White sharks are one of those few few sharks that, that do. And so when you see them eating a dead whale, they will swim around, take a single bite, swim around again take a single bite, but their jaws in a way that you literally see the teeth going down like a f-ing anvil, and it's crazy. Um, sorry.
0: Their bite force is also crazy. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> white sharks are a really, really cool animal. Um, if you've never seen one before, just like some stats. Uh, they big. Um, <laughs> <on> a- <laughs> when they're born, they're already like three feet long, and then <laughs> Yeah, so they're already, like, bigger than 80% of sharks in the ocean right when they're born. And then um, on the large end, they get to be around 20 feet. Um, the females generally are larger than the males. Some of them can get up to, like, 22 or 23 feet. On average, most white sharks are between 12 and 18 feet. So respectable. Yeah, so that's, like, 4, 5, 6 meters. Is it quite 6 meters? 6 meters yes. is... 18 feet, right? think around 18 to 20 feet. Yeah.
1: So yeah. yeah.
0: So yeah. Think a five or six meter shark. If you're not <laughs> from this country, where we use this is what
1: here. Americans have to go through to be right about measurements. By the way, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's right.
0: converting everything
1: um, into like, the actual thing that makes sense.
0: Sorry and congrats that you're not from here.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a callback. All right. So in the northeastern Pacific, where this study takes place, off the west coast of North America. So I think off the coast of the coast. Off the coast of California. Um, two top predators share the ocean, and that is white sharks and the orca, also known as the killer whale, also known as Shamu. Um, it's that black and white one. You know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Orcas are bigger than white sharks, if you didn't know. Um, oh they, my god,
1: they're fatter too.
0: Way yep, Wait, just, just bigger, all around and all the way long. Um, so... It's the opposite for orcas that the males are bigger than the females, um, but the females live longer. And for orcas, the females are gonna start out around like twenty feet.
1: <laughs> Wait, they're born? Wait. No, you just said no, no no no.
0: I start out. I mean, like average size. Uh,
1: oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. No,
0: when they're born, they're you like, make
1: gives birth to like a twenty-foot-long baby. That's that horrible. would
0: be nuts. No, that yeah. blue whales do that. That's it.
1: Don't tell um, me that. About- I'm gonna pretend I didn't hear that.
0: <laughs> anyway, the males can get up to almost 30 feet. Big
1: animals. Mm, okay, don't like whales for this reason alone. I'm keep going.
0: Real big, um, and really, really smart. Um, orcas have been known to you. You might have know this from my uh, from our previous episode. Um, killer grandmas is about <laughs> killer whales as well. Scientists agree that they have dialects, languages, and culture. Um, they're a really sophisticated animal, highly social, highly intelligent, and highly diverse. There are um, actually many different ecotypes of orcas that eat different things, live in different areas, have different customs. Um, they're all quite different. Um,
1: That's a question you might not know the answer to. Sure. Why are they called ecotypes and not just subspecies?
0: Oh, um, because they're not technically a subspecies because genetically.
1: So they'll still breed with each other? Yes, they do. Interesting. OK, um, actually,
0: a really cool thing about the different ecotypes is they will meet at designated locations at designated times led by the grandmothers in order to intermingle and and breed um, between the um, ecotypes to preserve genetic diversity in their populations. But the offspring always stay with the mothers. And so it doesn't matter what the genetics are. It matters uh, who raises them, what ecotype they're going to be. So that's why it's an ecotype and not a subspecies. species
1: That's cool as hell.
0: Okay, thank you. Right? Kind of like underwater humans. Um, And like humans, they are also a super predator. So, um, researchers from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, hey, and Stanford University used a combination of data from white sharks that were tagged and really long term observational surveys of orca sightings, sightings of white sharks preying on elephant seals off the coast of Northern and Central California.
1: So. so oh, so just to clear that up, uh, the, 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 the the white sharks and the orcas are both gonna be hunting the elephant seals, right?
0: Yes, they are, yes. Okay, good. Um, So like the type, the ecotype of orcas uh, that are in this area, there is a resident population that's been observed visiting sometimes, they mostly eat fish, but generally the regular visitors um, are gonna be the transient orcas which primarily feed on marine mammals. But transient orcas, by nature, go to lots of different places. Um, So they're not going to come back like every three years or something like that. It's very random where they go and when. They do what they want, essentially. (laughs)
1: Love it.
0: Yeah. So um, why did they want to look at all this data and study the interactions between these two predators? Well, it all started October fourth,
1: 1997.
0: Tell me a story, Madison. I will. At the <laughs> southeastern Farallon Islands, which are 30 miles off the coast of San Francisco, California, USA. So, at that location at that time, scientists observed a 15-foot white shark being tracked, killed, and partially consumed by a pod of transient orcas. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. They, this is like, this is like a, a strange thing to see. You wouldn't normally anticipate one top predator preying on another because generally predators want to go for easier meals. And white sharks are comparable in size and speed to orcas, not to mention (laughs) that bite force that we were talking about. Not to
1: mention the the height of a shark is a lot stronger than the height of an orca.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: White shark. God damn.
0: I know. And like, there are, there is an ecotype of orcas, um, offshore orcas that are known to eat sharks, but not white sharks. They're known to eat sleeper sharks. And
1: I have heard I have heard though about the ones that eat sharks, that their teeth get filed down to the nubbin.
0: Exactly. Because shark skin is covered in tiny teeth. (laughs) It's like sandpaper. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's a strange food choice for sure. It is. Um, to make it even stranger, uh, this pod of transient orcas didn't eat the entire shark. They, Consumed the liver. Ah, the dude, no, no, no. I was
1: about to ask if they ate the liver. Yep.
0: Only that. the liver.
1: Uh, because the liver is how mainly how sharks maintain buoyancy. It, it has so much fat content in it. It's the same reason that they eat the tongue of the humpback whale and not the rest of the body.
0: Yeah, they're very choosy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the liver is its where the oil and the fat are. It's how sharks stay buoyant. And it's also where sharks store oil and fat reserves for long migrations.
1: Mm-hmm. So I mean all the
0: good stuff is in there and somehow they knew that.
1: So they couldn't they could not have known that without prior experience.
0: Yeah, this could not have been their first <laughs> shark predation.
1: Oh my god. That's insane. Also, um, if you've never seen this is a weird thing to say. If you if you've never seen I've dissected a shark before. If you've never seen the inside of a shark, uh, maybe look up a picture because like 80% of their internal cavity is their liver. It's so big. That it's is it's got true. a lot of lobes, it's enormous.
0: That is true. Big liver sharks—they could—they could drink you under the table. <laughs> um, I have no idea if that's true. I'm just making an association. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't get into a drinking competition with a shark for many reasons.
1: Okay, I mean, there was um, a
0: study where they got lobsters high, so you know what—they got lobsters yeah, um... high. Lobsters don't even have a centralized nervous system.
1: No, they don't, but uh, there was, I, I don't think this was an actual scientific study, but there was someone who, like, injected THC smoke into, like, bubbles and put it in lobster water. Not lobster water. Water with a lobster in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't remember what happened, but... Uh, Damn
0: it, Jared. I'm so curious. Oh, All right, next I don't week on Podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Rabbit hole. Like, I
0: wonder if they got less aggressive. Okay, but back to the sharks and the orcas. Alright, so, immediately following this mysterious event, um, observations of white sharks uh, during their regular surveys that are at that island, suddenly there were no white sharks. They didn't see them preying on seals. They actually only saw two sharks preying on seals for the remaining eight weeks of study after that one predation event by orcas.
1: (laughs) That's insane. Right? So they must have... That would imply that they either smelled the whales or smelled the shark getting killed.
0: Yeah. um, Somehow, they caught on to what was happening, and they got out of
1: They, Yeah.
0: So, the purpose of this study is to figure out, like, why that happened and, like, what the f***, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, most people think of white sharks as the ocean's top predator. They definitely did back in 1997. Um, This was, like, prime sea world. And um, this was the first time that humans had ever observed a white shark being killed by any other animal other than a human. Ever. Ever. That's crazy. So this event contradicted a lot of previously held assumptions. um, And researchers wanted to explore those interactions and see what was up.
1: This is the kind of thing that, like, if a researcher themselves did not see it, the person that did would not have been believed.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely not. If someone was like... No, especially like in the '90s, they'd be like, "Honestly, too many drugs, bruh." Um, <laughs> go listen to Dave Matthews or something. Um, all right, so a little background on this region, the northeastern Pacific. Um, white sharks go there seasonally, and they gather at pinniped rookeries. Oh, what's a pinniped?
1: Pinniped is a seal and/or sea lion.
0: Exactly. So in this case, it's elephant seals, which are massive oh they are big big blubbery seal
1: um wait isn't i want to say the northerns are bigger right like there's northerns and southerns
0: that i don't know but i mean that would check out yeah yeah and these would be northern Mm -hmm. okay so these juvenile elephant seals are just like i mean rolls on rolls we're talking blubber it's a lot of energy super super fatty and so the reason that the white shark's aggregate during this time of year and feed on them or at least something so
1: (laughs) where are you going with this
0: (laughs) somewhere I just I started backwards a little bit um so like yeah super fatty and sharks need all of that nutrient-rich blubber um because immediately after this aggregation season when they're feeding on the seals
1: see that one I'm living in (laughs)
0: <laughs> nope. They're going to head offshore. And because the, this study is based on tagging from white sharks, they know that they're going to an area offshore that's really deep. Um, not a lot of marine mammals there. Not a place where they'd be hunting. We don't see from the, tra- from the tags hunting-like behavior. Um, and the males, they see diving really, really deep. Uh, into the water which takes a lot of energy for them to do that
1: the males and not the females isn't that weird that's yeah that's really weird what What
0: are they doing down there
1: i don't know especially because they wouldn't really be able to swim very well at especially the longer and longer they spent down there just because white sharks are they're not warm-blooded but they're warm-bodied you already knew that but you know yeah for, for the listeners
0: Exactly. So like as they get as everything gets around them gets colder, they can't swim as fast. They have to expend a lot more energy. And that piece of data helps explain why they're aggregating at these places with the juiciest, fattiest baby seals. Um, because they need a lot of energy to survive that subsequent offshore migration and the weird they're doing out there. Like, why is it just the males? Is there like a gay shark club at the bottom <laughs> of the park? That's what I'm really <laughs> You know, and then there's that really interesting video that they found recently of like those two male white sharks swimming just in perfect synchrony, which is like the most social behavior we've ever seen from that species.
1: Well, so I'm rem- I'm remembering there is a lot of like territory sharing that goes on with with white sharks like white sharks have like the very tip of their pectoral fins has like a black spot on it and when uh, two white sharks meet in the wild they'll generally flash the fins to to each other just to be like hey i'm not gonna try to fight you
0: oh yeah that's sweet yeah yeah it sounds pretty gay <laughs>
1: so, yeah, that was everything we've said in the last minute is only proving your point i think white sharks are gay
0: Yes. But that is not what this article is about. But happy Pride and happy Shark Month. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, we know why they're there. They really need to eat those seals. That all makes sense. Um, Now, the entire range of the white shark population in the northeastern Pacific falls within the range of some different ecotypes of orcas who are also in the Pacific. And the transient orcas in that area feed on similar prey. They're eating mostly marine mammals. So, like as you mentioned, they will tr- try to eat the calves of cetaceans like whales and dolphins. Uh, and they also feed on seals, juvenile and adult, because <laughs> they don't care. Um, <laughs> they care a lot, but
1: so I guess we were accurate to say that they can't really afford to care.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> transient orcas are just so interesting, though, because like. Okay, no, I can't get into that right now. (laughs) Um, So the northeastern Pacific orca populations form really distinct and stable social groups called pods, which we talked about a little already. And those different ecotypes, there's many pods within an ecotype, and they differ in specialization of prey. Northeastern Pacific orca populations form these distinct and stable social groups, which we already talked about a little bit. Those are the pods. Um, and there can be multiple pods in the same ecotype those ecotypes have separate cultures separate specialization of their prey choice transient pods eat marine mammals resident pods eat fish and offshore ecotype might eat sharks and squid we don't really know so they're hard to study because they're so offshore
1: so this was like a high school movie they'd all be at different tables
0: oh for sure yeah, yeah. and the transient orcas would be like they would be um the mean girls
1: Okay, this is the second stupidest thing I'm going to say this episode, but they form clicks, because they click when they echo locate.
0: Oh, they do! <laughs> so they literally, yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Mean sorry, Girls, everybody. Orca, Crossover. This is like my dream. <laughs> um, I really want a documentary about Orcas now that is, you know, it's like the text of Mean Girls, but footage of Orcas. I want a <laughs> everyone else does. I'm gonna start a, a GoFundMe. Okay, everyone, pitch in. All right. Oh
1: God, donate,
0: please, for my art. Um,
1: I just want a still of an orca saying "Your mom's chest hair."
0: <laughs> yes, and they totally okay. would. <laughs> uh, I think the resident orcas would be like the art school kids.
1: <laughs> I can't believe you're actually thinking into this. We need to oh, keep Oh, I going.
0: am. <laughs> um you shouldn't have brought this up all what
1: right you
0: and we're not even to the bulk of the study yet i'm still talking about the background info oh my god <laughs> anyway okay so the overlap between orcas in this area and the white sharks in this area is for four to four and a half months um in the transition from fall to early winter so onward to the study so the sharks that were involved in this study were tagged between 2006 and 2013. Um, 165 white sharks were tagged within that period. So it's a really large sample size. Um, that's right for white sharks. Yeah, and there are some like pop-up tags and such that were used, and that's why they know about these offshore migrations. But the majority of the tags were acoustic tags, and acoustic tags um, send the researcher information when the animal who is tagged swims close enough to an acoustic buoy. And so the buoys were placed around Southeast Farallon Island, which is where this event was observed. Also 40 miles North off of Tamales Point and 50 miles South around Ana Nuevo Island. So um, sharks were, if you're curious about how they tagged them, they were attracted with a seal decoy. Um, and an olfactory attractant, probably fish oil, and then the tag was applied using a long pole to insert a titanium dart tethered to a tag beneath the shark's dorsal skin, which is the least oh. invasive method. So that's rad. Yeah, there's
1: there's a lot of cool videos on the- uh, of this on YouTube, too. Just of like well, people on boats yeah. tagging sharks.
0: Yeah, mostly, um, that one guy?
1: I know exactly who you're talking about, but I can't tell you the name. You know the
0: guy. Listeners, yeah. you know the guy. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, so the seals involved in this study, uh, researchers just watched them and then recorded the number of hauled out elephant seals from the weekly elephant seal population census surveys that were conducted throughout the duration of a study on those populations that they pulled from. And so that ran from 1987 to 2013. Wow. So you got long-term data on the seals.
1: Yeah, seriously. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Additionally, in this area, this is one of the places where white sharks jump out of the water and grab seals, which is like super cool to see. And so at the highest point of these islands, um, they have basically a lighthouse platform. And sometimes it's legit scientists, but also citizen scientists can go up there and participate in these shark watch surveys where you sit up there all day and you count the number of predations you see of white sharks jumping out of the water and grabbing seals. That's amazing. I want to do it.
1: Yeah, I really want to do that.
0: Yeah. So between September 1st and November 30th, every year, uh, trained observers continually scan the waters around the islands and mark every occurrence of predation um, during all daylight hours, except when it's like crazy bad weather. Hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah and white because bad weather, you wouldn't even see it because of all the choppy ass water.
0: Yeah, exactly. And also, how'd you get out there? And like, yeah, it makes sense. Um... So they have that data to pull from. And then for the orcas. So because the orcas overlap with the white sharks in their territory, the people who are doing the shark watch surveys also often see orcas preying on these same animals. Um, And it's easy to see from up there because orcas have that distinctive black and white coloring. They're large. They hunt in groups. So when they start to take down a seal, you can watch that event. It's much It takes much longer than a white shark predation event, so those do not go unnoticed. Um, There's also been island cetacean surveys, opportunistic island-based observations, reports received via a network of wildlife viewing tour boats uh, during daily radio contact. And also um, just like people get really excited when they see (laughs) orcas. So (laughs) a lot of data there um, for people saying what they saw. so, these accounts of the behavior of the orcas uh, also often come with photographs of the whales. and the killer whales in that area, they know them pretty well, and they can identify many of them by their dorsal fin and their saddle pigmentation. And um, there's killer whale ID catalogs in in the works for many of the different ecotypes. And so they were able to determine the ecotype um, of the whales that were observed for most of them, um, for many of them. And when they could identify what ecotype the killer whales observed were, um, four times out of five, they were transients.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, so we're mostly talking about those transient orcas, the mean girls. <laughs>
1: 80%. <laughs> it makes sense.
0: They're the ones that eat mammals. Of course they're
1: there. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the white sharks can't sit with us
0: mm <laughs> apparently not. They I'm didn't not wear aware. pink and it was Wednesday. Mm-hmm. That's what the researchers found. End of study. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So compiling all of this data and looking at it, researchers found that there were more observations of sharks eating seals in the years when there were more seals observed. So that checks out. When there's yeah. more seals hauling out, you see more sharks in the area. Cool. Um, However, that correlation totally fell apart in years where orcas were observed within five kilometers of the island.
1: Five? Five kilometers? Co- okay. They had to have been smelling
0: them. I know, right? They couldn't, you can't see five kilometers through, no.
1: Not a shark. No. God. No. <laughs> it had to, um, right? It had to have been smelled because they can smell like at least a few kilometers away.
0: Um, they can smell about 2.5 kilometers away. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, But I mean, when there's a bunch of smelly orcas around, maybe. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, when in years where the orcas were spotted within that range, even in years where there was tons of seals, the observations of sharks eating those seals dropped really, really dramatically. So that is a strong point of evidence that sharks, when they see orcas, get the heck out of Dodge, even if no one's liver got (laughs) eaten.
1: At least everyone, but like those few not-so-smart sharks.
0: Yeah. Um, literally, it's so drastic, the drop in observations um, was sevenfold. 700%. Holy hell. Yeah.
1: that's a, Yeah, that is a lot.
0: That's crazy. It's a huge impact. And what's even crazier is in all of that time, except for the one event that I mentioned that sparked this, no occurrences of the white sharks, or no, No occurrences of the orcas preying on white sharks was observed. No evidence except for that one time.
1: Okay, I know that this is still like a couple year time span at most for the sharks, but I wonder, that makes me wonder whether this is instinctual for the white sharks or whether they learn over time um, to to avoid orcas.
0: I wonder too. Let's see, okay, so I'm going to keep going with our results and tell me if it helps you form an opinion on that. Okay. Okay, so by looking at the tagging data, researchers found several instances of abrupt and consistent flight of the white sharks from the island. And those were in the years 2009, 2011, and 2013, same years when orcas were observed close to the islands. And in the best documented instance, when most of the well-tagged animals were involved, um, this was in 2009. So a pod of orcas arrived within range of the island on November 2nd, Um, when 17 previously tagged white sharks were present at the Farallon Islands. Um, The orcas were only near the island for two and a half hours. (laughs) Two and a half hours. Um, They ate a couple seals, and then they departed, and they went north. They didn't return for the rest of the year. But following that, the mean number of white sharks detected per day around the southeast Farallon Islands Declined from a seasonal maximum, the most, to zero. (laughs) Oh my god. Zero.
1: Okay, that's gotta be instinctual. Right? Yeah. Especially, orcas, I think, are a fairly old species, aren't they? Haven't they been around for, like, at least a couple million years?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, when did marine mammals... I don't remember. But, yeah. Sharks are much older, but yeah.
1: True. And like, if not orcas, then it could have been a closely related species to orcas that was hunting white sharks, and then they sort of just like, the sharks themselves extrapolated it to the orcas of modern day.
0: Oh, interesting. Now I'm interested about looking up, you know, extinct species of marine mammals, and like, I wonder how metal they were.
1: Dude, um, uh, start with Leviathan, uh, the sperm whale with a massive goddamn jaw.
0: Ooh, okay. Into it.
1: Also, basalosaurus is fantastic.
0: Okay, cool. Thank you. Like, sorry give uh, a mammal.
1: Also, Basilosaurus is a stupid name for a mammal because. Oh,
0: yeah, so I was going to say. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a minute.
1: Uh huh. All right. Literally. Oh, but, lizard.
0: Yeah. Okay, but the craziness is not over. Um, oh. So remember, after being in the island for just two and a half hours, the orcas swiftly went north, right? Mm-hmm. So between two and 13 days, Of when those killer whales went north, uh, the tagged sharks that were previously around the South Farallon Islands were detected by their acoustic tags 50 miles south at Ananuevo Island.
1: They just they booked it.
0: In the opposite direction.
1: That's hilarious.
0: Yeah. Um, and all of the tagged white sharks that season were confirmed alive. So um, I mean, they still don't know if like maybe the orcas ate some non-tagged white sharks, but Oh, that's still.
1: actually, yeah, that's possible.
0: Yeah. But still, no one saw anything.
1: And the fact that, alone that 17 sharks, none of them got eaten, like seven, that's a, that's like a decent dice roll.
0: Right? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um,
1: like almost a natural twenty.
0: All right. So I know we've been talking about the ecology of fear. And so obviously the theory here is that it's the fear of the orcas that drove the sharks away. But can you think of any other uh causes that might cause the sharks to leave when the orcas come 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 there.
1: Um it might not necessarily be the killing of the sharks, but just bullying by the orcas because they're competing
0: over the same food. Right? Yes, exactly. Fear of competition. Yeah. yeah. So um they tried to rule they they looked into that to see if it was a fear of competition that the white sharks were just like, oh these guys are here, like now we're not gonna get anything to eat because they're just too good at eating. So we gotta go.
1: Um, (laughs) Uh, love that for 20 foot white sharks
0: right um so they deemed this to be unlikely because of the predation events observed at the surface in 15,383 hours of surveys between 1987 and 2013 um 912 predations were observed by white sharks and only five on three dates from killer whales. So they're
1: literally just it's almost like they're showing up to hunt white sharks and then leave with a couple seals when they can't get one.
0: Well, like maybe, but transient killer whale pods, except for that one occurrence, have never been known to hunt sharks and there's no oh, like true. writing down of their teeth or any evidence to support that.
1: I I'm reaching at straws, but I'm trying to, I'm just trying to make sense of this.
0: Right? Like I wonder if that one white shark just like pissed them off. Maybe. <laughs> Or maybe they just eat one shark every 10 years or something.
1: I mean, that's a big goddamn oh. winner. So, like, that would not surprise me. Also, right? they are they are a mammal. And so, to us, most sharks would probably taste disgusting unprocessed just because of how much urea is in their body. So, maybe it's that, too.
0: Yeah. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Oh, um, one more fun fact for no one asking. Uh, Greenland sharks are literally poisonous because of how much urea they store in their body.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. Um craziness who would want to eat they're like 500 years old that'd be like eating like George Washington
1: yeah well I would eat George Washington because he was rich in his time but um
0: yeah but like that'd be like eating him now when he's like old and dusty
1: you forget that idiotic white people in the late 1800s dug up mummies and ate them what yeah that was an actual thing medicinal cannibalism Yeah, we're massive hypocrites
0: was that in cannibalism a perfectly natural history I want to say yes I missed it Huh. Huh. Well, anyway, it's <laughs> unlikely that it was fear of competition that drove the sharks away. It's much more likely that it was um Well, actually no. So, the other option would be fear of predation, but as we've discussed, um that wasn't observed and all of the tagged animals were confirmed alive. So, we don't know for sure whether the sharks were afraid of being eaten. Um but that seems more likely than the fear of competition. Either way, They're afraid of the orcas for some reason.
1: Yeah. Like, you don't move 50 miles in the opposite direction of what you're uh, detecting because you're not afraid of it. (laughs) That is Yeah,
0: especially, like, when you depend on, like, literally, like, imagine, like, you're super hungry, like, you're about to go on, like, a crazy road trip where you're not going to have food for, like, days, and you get to an all-you-can-eat buffet, and this is, like, your last chance to, like, pig out before you go on your road trip, and then someone walks in and you're so afraid of them that you leave before eating and just never eat like
1: they don't even pay their bills
0: crazy um all right so another question that you may be asking if you were here last week which you were Jared I was. Um, was there a trophic cascade that occurred because of this fear effect no there was not <laughs>
1: that that kind of makes sense to me, just because, like, it's one megafauna eating another. No, well, no. I had a thought, but it, it was stupid when I sounded it out. I keep going.
0: So, basically, um, the pressure that the sharks put on the seal populations was redistributed uh, based on where the orcas were. Um, how And it is unlikely that the orcas had the same reduction effect on the seal population when they were in those areas, because... As the observation ratio shows, um, orcas don't eat as many seals as sharks. They don't stay as long. Um, But this study did not look into whether the seal populations were affected overall, or how these events were impacting those populations, or even the shark populations long term. Um, What they do know, based on the long term study, is that in general, the elephant seal population in that area is going up. That's awesome. yeah, but that has been happening since the 70s when the Marine Mammal Protection Act was put into place.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that, that growth continues. Um, elephant seals are still an endangered animal, um, and the populations out there... Well, not endangered, they're threatened. Um, and the populations there have not yet reached you know, equilibrium, what they're supposed to be. But when those populations do reach equilibrium, then maybe we can restart this study and see how the orca and shark interactions are affecting those populations when they're at normal levels. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. So what we do know um, is that these sharks need those elephant seals to store fat uh, to make their migration into those warmer, deeper waters where there's not as much food. One wonders
1: how many calories are in an elephant seal. Because like a tiny harp seal can have like 20,000 on like a good month.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, an elephant seal, like, especially a juvenile when, like, they're eating that milk,
1: like... You'd have to go to, like, kilocalories. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, I feel like one bite of elephant seal would be enough to kill a person. Yeah, <laughs> like, probably, so calories.
1: yeah honestly, just heart attack immediately.
0: Right? Um. Well, anyway, so the sharks in this area, they only spend about 30% of their time in the area off the coast of California but half of their caloric intake, they find off the coast of California. So if that gives you any indicator about the caloric level of elephant seals. There's a lot. Yeah, Um, and as we discussed that fat, they store in their oil rich liver, um, which they use for buoyancy, which they use to sustain themselves on that long migration period. And they've also noticed that disruptions in their foraging um, of the elephant seals prior to that migration, um, means that they're less likely to survive the migration and they're less likely to reproduce in the following year. Hmm. So those disturbances and disruptions aren't based on, um, the orcas being present, but it was observed in other situations when there was like offshore drilling and whatnot. Um, so we do know that like the seals are important to the sharks, um, and there is a possibility for, you know, more long-term ecological effects, but we don't know exactly. Um, what those risk effects are and how it will affect them. So much more, much more to be discovered in that arena.
1: I I wouldn't have thought that this was all the way back in 97, the first time it was seen. I but know, like, right? Yeah. Like, this seems think- like cutting edge finding with like cutting, bleeding edge technology being able to well, see. Well,
0: I mean it. this study, okay, so now that we've finished it, um, the name of this study was Killer Whales Redistribute White Shark Foraging Pressure on Seals. <laughs>
1: So the least exciting way to say that finding.
0: I know, right? Yeah. Um, And this study was published in 2019. Oh. Oh Yeah. So it was like a really long-term study. It went from 1997 all the way to now. Because there was, you know, I mean, during this whole study, they kept waiting to see it happen again, and it never happened. (laughs) Um, But they found all of this other stuff, and the theory of the ecology of fear, um, you know, became during that 20 year period. And so that affected, you know, everything.
1: It changed everything.
0: It changed everything. The All right, the so to give credit anyway. to the folks who did this research, um, it was published in the journal Nature, big mm-hmm. one, on April 16th, 2019. The authors were Salvador J. Jorgensen, Scott Anderson, Francesco Ferretti, James R. Tietz, Taylor Chappelle, or Chapel. It's Chapel. Taylor Chapel, <laughs> Paul Knieve, Russell W. Bradley, Jerry H. Moxley, and Barbara A. Block. And they're from several locations, including the Monterey Bay Aquarium, the Farallon Islands National Wildlife Refuge, Stanford University, Blue Point Conservation Science Center, and Montana State University.
1: Montana to California. Tel- okay, I'm not gonna get hung up on geography. Thank you, scientists.
0: Yeah, I don't know what they were doing over there in Montana. Um, mountain sharks. That's a landlocked
1: state, if I'm not mistaken.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, that is um, the other part of this. What was it? What was the word you used? used Episode extendisode? Ex- was Epist-
1: that it? I, it? It was either extendisode or epistension.
0: Yeah. Anyway, it's over now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no more tangents, uh, uh, but thank you for listening, and listen to the one that is also next week. Goodbye.
0: Yeah, if you, if you already have listened this far, like, what are you doing if you haven't listened to the first one yet? Go listen to it now.
1: I listen. love that my dog picks the exact end of the episode to start barking, so at least he's considerate.
0: I mean, my roommates picked the end of the episode just to start laughing really loud and having fun. Good for them. Well, I'm going to join them in a sec. But before I do, <laughs> before I do, um, I just want to give a big thank you to anyone who's still listening because it means a lot to me and you old Jared over there. Yeah. Um, we haven't been doing this podcast very long, but, um, you know, we're growing and we're trying to, uh, make it good. So any feedback you have for us is much appreciated and, um, also, thank you for listening. Make sure you download the episodes and also subscribe to the podcast channel. That really Ooh. boosts us, um, helps other people find it.
1: Also, want to mention um, we, uh, if you notice that we are p- publishing episodes a little bit less frequently, uh, we're not grinding down at all. Well, we technically are, but we're, we're just, just tired, okay? It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, still expect an episode every couple weeks.
0: Yeah, every couple of weeks. It's it's a little irregular. We're like we're doing like the transient orca thing. We're just browsing right now, just yeah. a couple seals, you know. But we'll we'll get more sharky later. I don't know. This a metaphor is not working. But the point a is, we come back a little because it's summer and we wanted to go like out into the sun and like be people. So yeah. Um,
1: also, when I do that, I don't like it, and so I go back inside and hide for a while. So that's also less time.
0: Yep, we're just doing other things. Okay. Yep. So thank you for listening.
1: So, so sue much. us. Just getting a Great letter.
0: review and subscribe. Tell your friends and um, let us know if there's an article or a topic that you really want us to cover after Shark Month is over because it almost is. And uh, love you. Bye. <laughs> Bye.